I'm very pleased uh, to welcome, joining us from the Far East, uh, Professor Michael Osborne, uh, who is Professor of Machine Learning and Director of the Centre for Doctoral Training in Autonomous Intelligent Machines and Systems at the University of Oxford, uh, and is co-founder of a firm, uh, Mind Foundry. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Professor Osborne. And with uh, Professor Osborne in the room, uh, we have uh, Michael Cohen, uh, who is a researcher in engineering science uh, at the University of Oxford uh, and who specialises uh, in this uh, subject matter. Uh, so perhaps I can start with a question to uh, Professor Osborne, our first question uh, of this inquiry, uh, which is a foundational one. How would you define artificial intelligence? Well, of course, this is an important question. And actually, the definition that I found in the government's proposal from July last year seemed about right to me. So there it was focusing on adaptiveness and autonomy, which I think are two of the core characteristics of AI that distinguishes it from previous technologies. But the other thing that I saw there was um, a recognition that the consideration of what is AI needs to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. You need to deeply delve into each application to consider the extent to which it is truly AI. That is, I think any definition needs to be flexible and in particular um, guards against people ignoring any sort of legislation about AI by putting a human into the loop. You don't just want to have a human dummy um, rubber stamping decisions made by an AI and thereby um, getting around any rules that might be put into place. But by and large, I think um, the definition that's been provided seems pretty good. Thank you. We'll come into that uh, human-machine uh, interaction uh, in some detail. Um, the, the fact, um, Professor Osborne, that you, you mention approvingly the UK government's definition uh, points to the fact that there isn't, as I understand it, a, a universally agreed international definition, global definition uh, <coughs> of artificial intelligence. Why is that? It's because the technology is quite diverse. Um, AI as a field encompasses many different types of algorithms for many different purposes. And in different applications, they can look very, very different from one another. So um, part of the other, another part of the challenge here is that the thing that we're trying to do, intelligence, is itself poorly understood. It's hard to define what intelligence is even in human beings and animals, let alone in these um, poorly understood constructions of our own. So um, for all that reasons, we have to make do with these rough and ready definitions, such as, for instance, AI being defined learning, adaptivity, and some degree of autonomy that is able to take actions on our behalf. Thank you. Um, and does the, the lack of a, a kind of crisp standard international definition. Does that pose any challenges for the governance of AI, would you say? Very much, and it points to this need to consider applications on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think any um, unifying definition is going to be able to be arrived at. I think there's got to be some means of considering each individual case on its merits and uh, governing it appropriately. I see. Well, that's obviously a very important steer for this first session is something of a of an introduction to the terrain and so your your steer is that answering the question of governance what should the governance be it should be based on applications rather than a, a, a universal uh, 
conception of AI. Thank you very much indeed. Let me turn to some That's of my fine. colleagues, starting with Graham Stringer. I find it very difficult to think about AI, uh, Professor. Um, first question is, it's, it's, it's always been difficult to predict uh, how different technologies will develop. I mean, famously, I think IBM only thought the world would need one large computer. Uh, they were wrong. Um, is it even more difficult because of the autonomy of AI to predict which direction it will go in? It is correct to understand that predicting the future of AI is difficult, as has been proven in various forecasting activities held by leading world forecasters who have not yet managed to perfectly <laughs> predict how the technology will develop. Um, the difficulty here, again, is linked to the complexity of the technology, the fact that it's poorly understood, even the aims of the technology are not well understood. And uh, we've seen repeated cases of the technology vastly exceeding what we had reasonably expected to be done. Um, most recently, for instance, large language models, which ChatGPT is just one example, have um, massively improved upon what people thought would be possible in shorter. Having said how difficult it is, and you, you gave a couple of examples, um, can you make a stab at telling us which way you think AI will go and whether we should be frightened of it or not? Well, I think it's fair to say that um, AI will continue to develop, that we can expect, if nothing else, continued change. Um, and um, at present, we've seen enormous um, <coughs> progress, in particular in large language models capable of generating text <coughs> that could have been produced by a human, and in algorithms able to convert text into images. So um, in that respect, I think we're likely to see continued advances in generative AI, AI that is able to produce text <coughs> in the place of a human being. Um, but um, it's fair to say that we're still only scratching the surface of what is possible with AI. So um, one thing that distinguishes AI from other highly hyped technologies like blockchain, like quantum, is that AI is actually proven. That is, people have realized great value from AI today, particularly big tech. But we also know that there are many aspects of AI that have not yet been brought to market. There are many capabilities that have impressed in demos like ChatGPT, but that have not yet been um, realized in economically valuable applications. So um, predicting the future is a mug's game, but uh, all I can say is that we're going to see um, continued rapid change in AI for some time to come. You sort of answered this question uh, in, in your introductory uh, remarks when you, you said that you thought every application should be considered on its own merits. In terms of any national or international uh, regulation, or re regulatory system for AI, um, is it possible to have a universal regulatory system? Do you think different countries can have different uh, regulatory systems? 
I think it certainly is possible to have some overriding um, principles informing how AI is governed. Um, and I think in an ideal world, those would be harmonized between different nations because the problems that we're facing are very similar. Um, some of those principles would uh, directly address some of the harms that AI might pose, many of which have been discussed in depth, but to reiterate, um, of course, AI poses challenges through its introduction of bias. AI poses threats to privacy. Um, AI is, of course, a dual-use technology with military applications that need to be appropriately considered. And we also have um, destabilizing influences from AI creeping into our society. Um, in the immediate future, we're seeing destabilization via social media. AI, of course, driving the feeds that we see on Twitter and Facebook. And in the not too distant future, um, we can very reasonably expect economic disruption, including much churn in labor markets as tasks and occupations become more automated. So um, I, I think focusing on the harms is one way to begin to consider overarching frameworks for governing AI. I, I've just got two questions. You mentioned some of the difficult areas uh, to apply AI. There's a debate last week in the House of Commons and this committee has looked at the evidence base that um, the parole board used for letting people out. Uh, do you think uh, that AI can help in applications like whether or not uh, prisoners should get uh, early parole, or do you think that's much too dangerous a precedent? Um, it's a really interesting question because, um, of course, AI is being used for such decisions already. Um, AI is making hiring and firing decisions. So it's not unreasonable to think that it might be able to serve some role in awarding parole. But of course, much caution would need to be taken in any such application. Um, AI is ultimately um, taking decisions in a very different way to the way that humans do. And you'd want to be making sure that the decisions that it's taking are um, supervised by a human. Um, you'd want to make sure that a human is making sure that the algorithm is not biased in any sort of illegal way. You'd want to be making sure that there was some explanatory framework for the decisions that are made. So. Mm -hmm. Mind AI. <laughs> right. Frozen. Um, <clears throat> like what he was saying. If you could still hear us, Professor Osborne, you've frozen on our screen, so we'll. Um, I asked my last question to Mr. Uh, Cohen. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, it could have gone to either of At the present development of AI, has it made the Turing test obsolete? Um, so, Professor Osman, that was directed to uh, to Michael Cohen, since uh, since you froze momentarily. Um, so, uh, or, or uh, both Cohen. of you, possibly. Uh, or, or both. But starting with Mr. Cohen, then uh, uh, the professor. Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, I think that if you get into really uh, well, I suppose. Um, you might think about having to refine the Turing test a bit. Um, so there might be um, people with certain expertise that you could distinguish um, from an AI at a point in time later than people without those expertise, without that expertise. Um, 
So I think maybe the Turing test would be a bit simplistic in assuming that every person uh, is more or less the same. Um, would it and be possible for the, yeah, the, yeah. the biologists in this age just to define the Turing test? Perhaps really we should um, yeah, yeah. do that. Yes, just, I'm sorry. Uh, just restate the Turing test. Yeah. The idea behind the Turing test is that you can know um, if a computer program has achieved human-level uh, intelligence if you can't distinguish it from a human. Oh, like a double-blind trial? Right. Fine. Um, sorry. Yes. So... Um, but, of course, uh, not all humans are the same. They have different uh, levels of expertise. And it could be that uh, there are some humans you could distinguish it from, uh, but not others. Um, so I suppose you might need to refine it that way. But I think it's still generally a, a decent test. And Professor Osborne? Uh, well, I think Michael is absolutely right. Um, but to add some additional detail, um, Firstly, the algorithms that have passed the Turing test to date tend to do things like mimic being someone speaking in a second language, a child, for <clears> instance. <throat> so um, this is what Michael was getting at in that, you know, to use the test to more meaningfully distinguish human from AI, we might want to try and identify humans communicating more sophisticated content. Um, it should also be said that AI today is very far from human level intelligence. And even ChatGPT and similar large language models have quite um, problematic blind spots in their reasoning. Um, to take one example, if you ask ChatGPT um, how you might join two pieces of paper together using only a pair of scissors and a Band-Aid, a plaster, the large language model, the AI, will be unable to concoct a way to do so, whereas almost any human child would immediately recognise that you could use the plaster itself to stick the paper together. The use of a plaster for adhering paper together is not something that's in the training set of the AI, and hence it doesn't understand that that's a possibility. So these AIs do still have really significant gaps in their understanding of the complexities of the real world, but nonetheless, they might be able to pass a Turing test if the test itself is sufficiently narrow. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Dawn Butler wants to come in. Thank you, Chair. Um, Professor Osborne. Um, Thank you for your uh, evidence today. It's, it's fascinating. I just wondered, you mentioned bias and technology. I just wondered if you could just drill down on that for the committee, please, and help us understand the different types of biases in machine learning. And I think I might right, well, Bias is a huge... Um, th thanks for the question. Bias is a huge issue for machine learning. Let's make no mistake about it. Some people present bias as purely being a result of garbage in, garbage out. And of course, that is a factor. Um, if you train a machine learning algorithm on a data set that is already biased, the machine will faithfully reproduce that bias. Famously, in 2018, um, Amazon was forced to admit publicly that an algorithm it was using for hiring was fundamentally sexist. That is, it was privileging applicants who identified as male over those that identified as female, even where the CVs were otherwise identical. But unfortunately, the problems of bias don't stop there. It's not that you can simply um, train up an AI on a perfectly unbiased algorithm and expect it to do the right thing, because fundamentally, AI is not always meeting the right goals. It's meeting the goals that we say, not the goals that we want. <laughs> so here, if I can give uh, a non-AI example, um, 
back in 1908 in Paris, there was a dog that was lauded for a hero for rescuing children from the, the sign. Um, so a child had fallen in and the dog had rescued it from the river and had been rewarded with a piece of steak. And then it happened again and it got another piece of steak, but then it became a recurring pattern. This dog seemed to be rescuing children every other day. So when this case was investigated, it was discovered that the dog was actually patrolling the banks of the Seine and pushing kids in just so it could rescue them and get the steak. And th this is a real problem with AI in general. We have to be very careful about the goals that we set it because it's going to ruthlessly at uh, attack those goals, even if they're not actually the goals that we meant. Absolutely, and I think I'm with Graham in terms of I'm very worried and nervous about AI for that uh, particular reason. And and how do we um, how do we stop people believing that AI is the future and therefore putting all of their confidence in that? Because then it becomes difficult to challenge the uh, AI system. How do we stop that from happening? Oh, again, a huge problem. There's, do you know the term bionic duckweed? If not, and for anyone else who doesn't, it's referring to a common pattern of thought, which says, well, we don't need to solve the challenge of um, electrifying our transportation now. Um, we don't need to come up with you know, new ways of getting renewable energy into transport because somewhere down the line, someone's going to come up with a way of biologically engineering a form of weed which will be able to grow in enormous proportions and then we'll be able to use that weed as a biofuel and all our problems will be solved. So no need to do anything now because, you know, in a couple of decades, we'll have this magical technological solution which will um, address all our issues today. And it's actually a thought pattern that occurs very often in AI. People are looking to AI as a kind of magical solution, which somewhere along the line, which will solve various problems that we're currently facing. But I'm absolutely with you that um, that is not the way we should be thinking about AI. If we've got problems, we should find ways to solve them today and not look to AI as some kind of silver bullet solution that's coming down the line, particularly because AI today is so compromised by so many issues and um, we have no idea at present how to address most of them. Thank you, Professor. And I, and I don't know if... Um... The other Michael, if you want to come in too. And just to, to throw in um, the police and the police use of AI, which is quite sort of prevalent in America <coughs> at the moment. And there was, there's lots of cases, but there's a recent case of uh, a black man who was in jail for a week, accused of a robbery in a place he's never been to um, in his life. So um, how, do, how do we mitigate that, stop that from happening? How do we stop, stop that situation? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. Um, so um, Professor Osborne was starting to talk about you know, where, this, um, where this behavior can arise from. And, and the first thing he mentioned was you know, garbage in, garbage out data. If the data is, is biased, then the predictions will be too. And then um, I want to echo what he was saying, is that's not necessarily the only problem. So. Um, one way to understand um, human racism or, or bias in general um, is um, using the quickest, roughest heuristic you can come up with that strikes you the first um, and then run miles with it. Um, 
And so um, the, you know, if you see that there aren't many female CEOs in the world, the first thing you might conclude is that, well, that's not the sort of thing um, that women do. Um, that would be, that, and, and what we use our intelligence for, one of the things we use our intelligence for is to look closer and see how you know, that's not really what's going on at all. Um, but if you have um, an AI that's, that's looking for the simplest uh, explanation, um, the quickest explanation it can find. Maybe it doesn't have, um, maybe its model isn't, isn't rich enough to, <coughs> even to, to, to be able to express what's really going on. Um, you'll end up with something that can't even conceive of, of um, its own limitations um, and, its, and the necessity of, of relying on um, simplistic and ultimately incorrect yeah. uh, explanations. Um, I haven't looked at what exact algorithms police are using, um, but um, I suspect that's that's one issue involved. Um, as for solutions, um, people can try conditioning um, predictions on certain things, and so um, there are, there are various technical proposals for how you might um, enforce certain um, indifferences. Um, um, and make it kind of discount that. Um, but typically, um, to the extent that the thing you're conditioning on is poorly measured, um, there will be some leakage there. Um, yeah. um, and so that's, that's difficult. Okay, can I just ask one final question to you both? Um, are all data sets biased? Do all data sets have a bias in them? Um, Sorry, Professor. Come in first. Yeah. So, um, Firstly, if I may, I might briefly um, return to your question of policing in that um, actually the company I co-founded, MindFoundry, has actively been working with um, the Scottish police force in bringing AI to work there. But I think the way that we've been doing that illustrates a general point that I wanted to make, which is that there are right and wrong ways to deploy AI. And I think the kind of use of AI for policing you were describing is one that I would describe as you know, just a no-go area. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use AI for that at all. Um, but instead, we recognise that there are many places to help police that involve just the automation of much lower level tasks. So for instance, we're using AI to help process case reports, to do named entity recognition, to pick out the relevant pieces of text to um, help unify large databases. So um, I think we should always be keeping in mind that there are ways for AI to help that don't necessarily go anywhere near the things that we don't ever want AI to do. Um, but to your question about is all data biased, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so fundamentally, data is gathered by human beings for a particular purpose, <coughs> and data always encodes some decisions, right? Data is a result of a decision-making process about what is worth measuring and what is not, and um, involves some sort of boundaries being drawn in the world, some sort of categorization. And none of those categorizations can be viewed as completely neutral. Of course, it's the result of some sort of assumptions on that human's part. So, um, you know, it's an illusion to think that data is neutral, data is objective. Um, it always encodes some sort of biases in the form of assumptions, and they always need to be questioned uh, and examined before any AI is put to work upon that data. 
Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Don. Just before I go to Tracy Crouch and then Aaron Bell, um, just to, uh, first of all, a follow-up uh, to Professor Osborne. Uh, you, you mentioned machine learning a few moments ago. Um, is there a, what's the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? Are they interchangeable? Ah, um, sorry, yeah, I, I've kind of conflated those two terms. They are distinct, but not very. So AI is the broader field. AI is a superset of machine learning. But um, the other areas of AI that were traditionally distinct from machine learning in the last decade have more or less been taken over by machine learning. So traditionally computer vision, which is the processing of images, was seen as something distinct from machine learning, but now is almost entirely a field of machine learning itself. Machine learning is the use of statistical and um, other algorithmic techniques to solve learning problems. But um, by and large, you can consider the two today, AI and machine learning as the same thing. I see, thank you very much indeed. Um, and then a, a question to, to Mr. Cohen. So already we've surfaced some of the, uh, the problems and the, and the worries uh, about the application uh, of AI. But your uh, submission in evidence to us referred to the economic value, the value, the, the positive uh, aspects offered by different types of uh, AI. Could you summarise or kind of reflect on some of the, uh, the areas that offer significant benefits um, to, uh, to society and to the economy? Yeah, um, so as uh, Professor Osborne mentioned earlier, um, chat GPT is a long way from being able to imitate uh, humans uh, extremely well, um, but in the future, um, if we have really high quality imitations of humans, um, a lot of their economic output could be produced much more cheaply. Um, this is very close to a problem, but looked at on its own, it's, it's, a, it's a great possibility. Um, and. Uh, so, so you could imagine the economy growing unfathomably. Um, I'll get into issues with that if you like, but no, no, we'll, we'll we'll do that yeah. in, in due course. But sure. uh, but just point us out. So that's so it can you can do things more cheaply, more yeah. in terms of uh, resources. So that's clearly one uh, aspect. Um, what, what are the other uh, benefits? Then, Big Stephen. Yeah. Um. <coughs> well, that's producing things cheaply is, is a pretty broad category of benefits. I mean, I could get into specifics of things you could produce more cheaply, but that's, okay. that's about all we can ask for from technology. Let me just ask Stephen, then I'll um, just ask briefly the same uh, to Professor Osborne. Thank you. Um, this technology has been around for quite a while. Um, it is improving, growing, developing all the time. But we've been told, so I started the all-party parliamentary group on AI in 2016 because of the phrases that were being bandied around and the fact that there was this potential impact on, in my case, particularly constituents, mm -hmm. and that they would be replaced by AI in all its various guises. And yet six, seven years on, we haven't actually really seen any impact of that. What it has done is augment the way people work. So can you give any examples specifically of where AI has been deployed and replaced people as opposed to augment what they do? No, I can't. Um, the best I can give you is an example of um, 
the economic output of horses after the combustion engine was developed. Um, the, that would be an instance of a technology really just replacing um, the work of, of some other thing. And One specific area, that is, isn't it? That was in the transport. Right, but that's all horses could do, yeah. really. They were a bit more flexible. Right, and so that's, I think, why you haven't really seen that with us yet, yeah. because AI isn't at the level where it couldn't do what we do. Um, and so um, I don't think this is the sort of thing where you'll see gradual um, encroachment uh, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. We thought we'd lost um, <laughs> Professor Osborne, but it turned out that the lights went out, so it was a very uh, right. uh, low-tech uh, <laughs> problem. Um, <laughs> Professor Osborne, we've, we've started just surfacing some of the, the benefits and doing things um, more cheaply in, in resource terms is, uh, is one way, uh, is one benefit. And any others you'd like to add just at this early stage of our uh, deliberations? Um, well, um, Mr. Cohen is right, of course, that being able to do tasks more cheaply than a human um, offers up enormous potential. I mean, um, but beyond that, of course, AI doesn't suffer from some of the problems that afflict human labor. For instance, AI can be far more vigilant. AI can work 24-7, doesn't get distracted by kids in the background or anything. AI is scalable to a degree that humans aren't. You can spin up as many instances of an AI as compute that you have. So for all those reasons, um, AI can um, do things that humans can't. It can also operate in extreme environments. You can have AI on satellites, as indeed we're doing. So um, there, there are many potential um, improvements of AI just viewed as a replacement for human labor. But as you correctly said today, AI is better thought of as an augmentation of human labor, as a collaborator with humans. And in that respect, it is already having enormous impact. Um, AI may not be replacing wholesale occupations, although if I can give one fun example, in 2013, we predicted that fashion models were highly automatable. We predicted they had a 98% probability of automatability, and we were laughed at. But now, of course, there are firms producing digital models with the aid of computer graphics software that are able to pose in whichever clothes you want um, to produce digital images that you can put up on your social media profile for actual fees from fashion brands. So um, fashion models are directly being automated through the use of um, AI technologies. Thank you. Uh, but, um, sorry. Uh, well, perhaps just on this question of um, uh, the the current role to augment um, other work that that humans do, is that not just a a current and temporary restriction? And will it not be the case that either now or shortly, for example? in the diagnosis uh, of medical conditions, for example, the, the capacity to analyze uh, that a, uh, an AI uh, package might have is simply beyond the, you know, the computational and cognitive powers of any of the most eminent physician, in the same way that um, some of these games um, players are now regularly beaten by machines. Aren't we going to beyond helping people to actually supplanting people in terms of them being able to do things better? Um, if I might answer that. So um, firstly, I think your first point is absolutely right, that there's no law that says that um, AI will always be limited. And there's every reason to expect that 
um, even this century, we might see AI that's at least as capable as human beings and very likely far, far more capable than any human being today. So that is a prospect, but at least to my mind, it's not an immediate one. You're absolutely right that today AI is better thought of as augmentation. Um, taking your example of game playing, it's important to recognise that a game is an environment that couldn't have been better designed for AI to perform in, in that a game is very crisp and clear. Um, the rules of the game are provided explicitly to the algorithm. It's usually easy to gather an enormous data set of games played so the AI can learn the moves. And usually there's perfect information. Usually you can see the board state without any of the mess and lack of structure and heterogeneity that makes real world decision-making, real work much more difficult. So um, we shouldn't over-index on the success of AI in games because games are sort of uniquely suited to AI. Indeed. And, um, and don't have any of the ethical questions that Dawn um, pointed to, for example. Exactly right. And in your example of medical diagnosis, I think those ethical questions are very salient. And in fact, um, <coughs> I don't think we should be using AI for medical diagnosis immediately. Um, notably, despite really optimistic forecasts as that from um, one of the pioneers of deep learning, Jeff Hinton, back in 2016, that all radiologists would be out of a job within six years. Um, here we are seven years later, and that's not true. Um, you know, there hasn't been this big uptake of AI technologies, even in those areas of medical diagnosis um, where computer vision is perhaps best suited. Um, we wrote a report on how AI could contribute to healthcare, um, which came out a couple of years ago. This was sponsored by the Healthcare Foundation. And our conclusion there was that AI is much better thought of as a way to automate away much of the tedious admin work that plagues um, you know, frontline workers in the NHS today, particularly in primary healthcare. So um, we would like to see much more thought about how AI can help doctors process letters, um, help them to do the management of data, um, you know, the famous fact that the NHS was the largest purchaser of fax machines in the world. Um, until very recently points to the need for much greater um, investment in AI for routine processing of information, which we think could deliver great value. Thank you very much indeed. Your evidence is uh, attracting lots of uh, questions, uh, supplementary questions around the table, but I'm going to stick with the, the order that we planned. So we get to Tracy uh, and then Aaron and then colleagues that want to ask some supplementaries and I'll bring them in at the end if uh, that's okay. So Tracy. Thank you. Um, Mr Cohen, is it right to say that we don't know if or when transformative AI uh, will be developed? Uh, I think it's right to say we don't know when. So just before you answer that, Mr Cohen, just uh, perhaps define transformative AI. We've, we've had a definition of mm. AI, transformative <coughs> AI. Um, you know, I think different people might use the term a bit differently. Um, I can try to answer the question of when superhuman AI is likely uh, to come, if and when, um, since I, I'm a bit more comfortable with the definition of that. Um, unless you have an idea. So perhaps Professor Osborne might be able to. Yeah, perhaps on the definition of, um, of transformational AI, Professor Osborne. Well, um, as um, Mr. Cohen correctly said, transformative can mean many different things. And I think you could very reasonably claim that we already have transformative AI, as in the form of ChatGPT, um, which is an advance perhaps comparable to that of search engines, maybe even the internet, if you're feeling particularly enthusiastic. 
So um, certainly the technology we have already has enormous potential for transformation across the economy and in society more broadly. But um, when we think further into the future, um, thinking about Michael's um, speciality of superintelligence, um, as Michael said, there's a lot of disagreement, but at least to me, things feel to be really rapidly developing right now. And we have this quite worrying development of arms races emerging. So for instance, very recently, Google has called back in Larry Page and Sergey Brin and has said publicly that it's willing to recalibrate the level of risk it assumes in any release of AI tools due to competitive pressure from OpenAI. So what they're saying is that the, the big tech firms are seeing um, AI as something as very, very valuable and they're willing to throw away some of the safeguards they've historically assumed and take a much more move fast and break things perspective on AI, which um, you know, brings with it enormous risks. So Mr. Cain, what is superhuman? <laughs> superhuman um, would be that um, for pretty much any task we can do, um, it could do it better. Um, intelligence can be a bit difficult to think about um, in terms of what that means, but ability to complete tasks is a bit more concrete. Um, uh, so if across a broad range of tasks, um, AI is, is better able to accomplish them than us, um, then I would call it superhuman. So you think that that is coming, but the uncertainty would be around when? when. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, certainly on our current track, it, it seems like there will be continued investment in AI until it does come. Um, and uh, no, I, I have no idea when it will come. And are there any Im implications in that? uncertainty? Um, I think the implication of the uncertainty is that, um, you know, conservatism demands that we <coughs> kind of think about the, 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 more, the worst possibilities. Um, so I think we should prepare for it coming on the sooner end um, because uh, if it does, then, and, and if we haven't prepared, then, then we're out of luck. We might get lucky and, and have a bunch of time, but we might not. Could you just um, expand on some of the risks that you think are posed yeah. by AI systems to their end users um, or those who encounter them in everyday life and, and how do you think that these could be mitigated? I know Professor Osborne has obviously just mentioned um, some risks there. I just wondered if you could just expand a little on, on others. Yeah, so um, with, with superhuman AI, there's a particular risk that is of a different sort of class um, which is that, um, well, it could kill everyone. Um, <laughs> um, the, so there's an analogy that I think is actually pretty good, um, which is um, if you imagine training a dog with treats, um, it will learn to pick actions that lead to it getting treats. And we can do similar things with AI. Um, but if the dog finds the treat cupboard, it can get the treats itself without doing what we wanted it to do. Um, and if you imagine going into the woods to train a bear with a bag of treats um, by selectively uh, withholding and administering treats, depending on whether, whether it's doing what you'd like to do, um, what the bear would probably actually do is, is take the treats by force. Um, and so if you're trying to train um, AI and, and the way we train AI to, to do long-term planning today is, is broadly pretty similar to the, 
to the way um, we train animals. Um, if you imagine doing that and, and the, the, the paradigm where the AI is, is incapable of kind of taking over the process will look completely different from the paradigm where it is. Um, and so if, um, if the AI is able to gain power in the world uh, and intervene in its feedback, um, then that would actually be what its algorithm tells it to do. Um, it, it, the, the, the output of the algorithm would look totally different from the setting where in order to get the treat, it has to do what we like. Um, and, um, and then if you have something much smarter than us, um, kind of monomaniacally trying to um, get, this, get this positive feedback, however we've encoded it and, it, and it's taken over the world to, to secure that, mm -hmm. um, it would direct uh, as much energy as it could towards securing its hold on that, and, and that would leave us um, without any energy for ourselves. So my second question to the, the primary question was how can it be mitigated? But mm. you've sort of implied that it can't. No, it can. Um, so, um, well, um, I, um, there, so what I've described does not apply to all forms of AI. So if, for instance, I was talking earlier about the economic benefits of human imitation of AI. If you're training a human to imitate AI, uh, it would not take over the world any more than the human it's imitating would. Um, and so uh, that's a different algorithm. Um, that gets encompassed under the very broad term AI. Um, AI can cover prediction and it can cover planning mainly. Um, and for things that are only doing prediction, this is, um, this is not uh, an outcome that I think we should expect. Um, and so you can, I, I think there, um, I think it's distinctly possible to develop regulation that um, prevents the sorts of uh, dangerous AI that I'm talking about um, while leaving open um, an enormous set of economically valuable forms of AI. Um, and, um, but I think we, we would need to regulate away certain algorithms. The chair in his opening questions mm -hmm. asked around the lack of consensus in terms of definition and the governance challenges yeah. that that faces. So if there's no consensus on the definition, then how can we design a regulatory yeah. system yeah. with you know, all these different aspects to it? Yeah, I think AI <coughs> is the wrong concept. There's, there's no consensus on the definition of that. But we can talk about, um, but, but the risks aren't from AI broadly. They're only from a specific subclass of algorithms. So we can have regulation that's targeted at um, long-term planning artificial agents using a learned model of the world. Um, and, and we can use only terms that are much easier to get a handle on. Um, so by steering away from, from the terms that no one can agree on exactly what they cover and focusing on, on the terms that are much clearer, um, which actually hew much closer toward um, separating uh, the good from the bad. Um, I think we can develop uh, national and international standards on this. So forgive my ignorance, uh, I, I have a question about the use of black box AI systems. Is that mm -hmm. the same as superhuman or is that something different or is... Um, so, it's I... in theory different, um, although I think a lot of um, 
machine learning practitioners believe that the, the most capable models will be black box models. That is, you won't be able to look into them and, ex and inspect all of the things they believe. So how can they be regulated? Um, so I think that regulation that tries to inspect the models and see what they're thinking um, is less likely to succeed. Um, but I think you can um, come up with successful regulation based solely on the design of the algorithms. Um, the design of the algorithms that's producing the black box models rather than the inscrutable circuits um, that, that are being generated. Could that regulator be AI? It's uh, I suppose it could be assisted by AI, um, but um, I, think, I think humans could manage. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Thank you uh, very much. You're talking about, sorry, um, you're talking about setting the rules of the game for the computer program. That's what you mean, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stephen, did you just want to... Yeah, just on, on this, this idea of black box and explainability, and so, I mean, I agree, because it is very difficult to build in explainability into a black box, It's because yeah. it is a mystery. What about repeatability, so that, or predictability, so that you actually um, have some way of <coughs> deciding whether what you want from the AI is what you're getting from the AI? If you can't build in explainability, surely there must be some way of controlling it. And bear in mind that... Uh, as I said earlier, nothing's artificial about AI and nothing's intelligent about it. Just back to your um, Terminator plot. Surely we can just pull the plug. So today, absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't even need to. Um, the Yeah. Um, if you have something that's much smarter than us um, across every domain, um, it would uh, presumably avoid sending any red flags mm. um, while we still could pull the plug. Um, if I were an AI that was trying to do some devious plot, the first thing I might do is access the internet and, and get my code copied on some other machine that no one knows anything about. And at that point, it's much harder to pull the plug. Let's not go down that rabbit hole too much, because I, I think this is an unrealistic scenario. But anyway, let's talk about the actual black box and repeatability uh -huh. as opposed to explainability. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, re repeatability seems like a good thing to, uh, uh, to look for. Um, if you're wondering whether something's going to do something truly catastrophic, um, running it through a bunch of tests is, is not going to help much because the tests are... So, so, so repeatability um, could work in some settings, but, but not for the ones that, uh, that I'm concerned about that you're skeptical about. Could we um, perhaps ask uh, Professor just to, you've, you've heard the exchanges on, uh, on black box uh, AI, perhaps just give us your perspective on that and then I'll turn to Aaron Bell who's got some further questions. Well, um, I firstly wanted to endorse everything that Mr Cohen has said, but um, I, I would like to introduce um, a sort of framework that might help think about some of these issues of governance, which is distinguishing the normative questions of AI from the technical <laughs> questions of AI. So I think um, good governance should consider both slightly. Or normative and technical, so did you say? I missed your second. Exactly. Normative, normative and technical. Yes. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, thinking normatively, I think there are some applications of AI that should just be disallowed. So um, for instance, I don't think facial recognition should be used by the police, to give one example. I think that should just be outlawed. Um, 
but we also want to have some Professor, can you expand on that? Did, uh, can you say yes, why? Explain why you think that sh that's, that's clearly uh, should be banned. Well, um, maybe I've gone too far, but at le it's at least something we should consider banning because, as we've described already, these questions of bias are so um, difficult to erase from AI that we'd be, have to be um, very careful in any deployment of facial recognition within <coughs> the policing operation in order to ensure that it was actually... Um, you know, not problematically biased. Okay. Um, but um, if not that example, there are there are others that I'm sure we would all agree that um, AI should not be... I'm sure we'll, we'll come on during our inquiry to go into some detail on lots of these. As an opening session, you're giving us so much food for thought, but uh, but continue with your, your distinction between the two types of uh, the normative and the technical. Right, well, so um, technical goals for AI um, consider the sort of best practices of how AI should be used. And here we come on to that question of should an AI be a black box? Um, to what degree should an AI be able to explain itself? Um, to what degree should an AI be robust to various attacks? Um, you know, should its performance be subject to certain guarantees? So, the, you know, those two questions are slightly distinct, right? One is more about what um, we want to agree um, should or should not be a rightful target for AI. And the second question is more about um, in the inner details of AI, how is it best to achieve the goals that we have set? Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Aaron Bell. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you both. Um, yeah, we've got on to the slightly bleaker part of your written <laughs> evidence where you use words like catastrophic and existential risks. Uh, I mean, to sort of follow up what Steve said, how, how realistic do you actually think this is, as a, not, not saying in the next 10 years, but at some point in the future? Um, it seems to me sort of have parallels with all the concerns that, you know, the, the particle accelerator at CERN might in, inadvertently end the universe. I, is this something that you could realistically see being a problem, say, in the next 30 years, uh, yeah. Mr. Cohen? Yes. Um, I mean, you look at it at first glance and you can, you can see some similarity between concerns about the CERN particle accelerator and this. Um, and then what academics do is they look closer and, and the academics look closer at CERN and they say, nope maybe a reasonable idea at first glance, but, but not actually a concern. Um, and they look closer at this and they say, still seems concerning, and they look even closer and they say, yeah, actually, the output of these algorithms, if they were doing planning much more effectively, would in fact behave this way. Um, really, really the only difficult part to get your head around, I think, is, is that um, artificial systems really could be as good at outfoxing us geopolitically as they are in, say, um, the very simple environments like games yeah. um, that, that Professor Osborne was explaining, you know, just how much simpler they are. Um, but, um, you know, if, if your life depended on beating um, an AI at chess, um, yeah. you wouldn't be happy about that. So what's, what's impressed us recently with ChatGPT and the image generation stuff, <coughs> is that basically an extension that, because those areas, are, they're obviously creative arts, but they, they have sort of game-like rules to them, and you know, obviously much more complicated than chess or Go or yeah. anything like that. Is, is that what's happened in, in the recent development, that essentially they found the rules for writing poems and speeches yeah. and things like that, yeah. and also obviously having the training data? Yeah, um, so I think you've seen in the last few years um, uh, AI becoming much more generalist um, in some ways. Um, so it's, it's able to understand the rules of much more complex domains. Um, and I ex expect that progress to continue. Is there, 
is there a reason why that wouldn't you know that there would be a limit on that in any way in terms of the complexity of the the natural world you know even going down to you know uncertainty principles and all the rest of that that they i couldn't you know couldn't grasp these things or you you seem to be quite fatalistic about the possibility of i mean okay it's not going to know the velocity and position of a particle at sufficient precision you mentioned the uncertainty principle but but beyond those physical limitations um uh no no there's no limit i mean kind of astonishingly to me um while birds were flying around them people denied the possibility of heavier than air flight um and and we are examples (coughs) of of um intelligent agents that can understand the world uh and and there isn't so there certainly isn't any reason to think that AI couldn't get to our level, and, and then there's also really no reason to think that we're the pinnacle of intelligence. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, you obviously think it's a realistic prospect that an AI could emerge that seeks to gain control over our resources, over our lives, and so on. So mm-hmm. overall, it looks like a fairly risky endeavor. Do you think it's realistic to try and regulate that away then? Because you know, it surely would take global regulation, and even then, there's no, no need for anyone to necessarily stay within those rules? Um, well, if we can develop a shared understanding of the risks here, then, then the game theory isn't that complicated. I mean, imagine there was a button on Mars that said, that, that was labeled geopolitical dominance, but actually if you pressed it, it killed everyone. Um, if everyone understands this, there's no space race for it. Um, so if, if we can get on the same page as an international community, um, that, that many of the leading academics are, here are on, um, then I think we can um, craft regulation that, that targets the dangerous designs of AI while leaving um, extraordinary economic value on the table through safer algorithms. I'll bring you in, uh, Professor Osborne. I mean, uh, firstly, a comment on how realistic you think that the, the, the sort of bleak vision is, and, and are there other realistic scenarios for predicting the future evolution of AI, or should we be making preparations for the bleak scenario whenever that might arise? Well, I, I think the bleak scenario is realistic because AI is attempting to bottle what makes humans special that has led to humans completely changing the face of the earth. So if we're able to capture that in a technology, of, of course it's going to pose just as much a risk to us as we have posed to other species, the dodo is one example. Um, timelines are, of course, difficult, and um, there, there are many challenges um, that we might encounter either before that or even uh, alongside that, in that, um, firstly, AI is a general purpose technology. So we've seen the world changed by the automobile, we've seen the world changed by the internet. And just thinking about language models alone, you might say that AI is already at a similar sort of scale of being able to impact on a very wide variety of different human endeavors. And so um, when the world changes a lot, um, of course, there are risks that are posed, um, there are winners and losers. So, um, you know, we do have to prepare ourselves for those kind of rapid changes. Um, You asked about the prospect of international regulation of AI, and, um, you know, there is some reason for hope in that we've been pretty good in regulating the use of nuclear weapons, at least for several decades, um, where, of course, um, there, you know, is a similar sort of strategic advantage if someone was able to um, use them successfully. So um, if, as Mr. Cohen said, we're all able to gain an understanding of advanced AI as being of comparable danger to nuclear weapons, perhaps we could arrive at similar frameworks for for governing it. Thank you. Um, 
If you could highlight one factor then that you think is particularly key to the future development and impact of AI, positive or negative, what, what would that single factor be? Would it be reg the regulation? Um, if the question is for me, yes. Um, yes, regulation is absolutely key. And I think one thing we absolutely need to try and prevent are arms races. And unfortunately, as we speak, I think we're in a massive AI arms race, both mm -hmm. geopolitically with the US versus China, um, and also amongst the tech firms, as I said earlier, there seems to be this willingness to throw safety and caution out the window and just race as, race as fast as possible to the most um, performant and advanced AI. And I think those dynamics are ones that we should absolutely um, rule out as soon as possible um, in that we really need to adopt the precautionary principle and try and play for as much time as we can. Just on that, I mean, arms race is a metaphor. Well, just unpack that a bit. What, what do you literally mean um, by what is going on that you characterise as an arms race? Well, I think it is literally an arms race in that AI is a military technology. AI can be used to control drones much more effectively. AI can be used to do satellite recognition and serve various military purposes. And, um, you know, uh, the actor, the geopolitical actor that masters a particular AI technology first may have enormous strategic advantages. So in that sense, it is quite literally an arms race. But um, when, it become, when it comes to civilian applications, there are similar advantages to being the first to develop a really sophisticated AI that um, might eliminate the competition in some way. And um, if the technology that's developed might not, you know, if it doesn't stop at eliminating the competition, but perhaps eliminates, um, you know, all human life, um, we'd be very worried. Thank you. And oh, just to finish, you said earlier uh, predictions are mugs game, and uh, I'm not going to ask you to bet as such, but where do you see AI <laughs> being in five years, 10 years, 20 years, each of those timeframes? Uh, you know, how realistic are we? You know, is it going to be positive for the next five years and then the, the risk might come later? But could you just have a, have a few wild stabs in the dark, perhaps? For wise steers um, to the commission. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as I say, the one thing I'm certain about is that there's a lot of change coming. Um, in, which, in which direction the change will come is more difficult to predict. But, um, of course, we tried to do exactly that in our reports on the future of employment um, and... Broadly, we expect um, AI to be doing more routine work and AI to be doing less creative and social work. So as a broad framework, you can expect tasks that involve um, uh, routine, repetitive labor, um, revolving on sort of low-level decision-making to be automated very quickly, um, tasks that involve a deep understanding of human beings, like, for example, is involved in all of your jobs, um, in leadership, in mentoring, in negotiation or persuasion, AI is unlikely to be um, a competitor to humans for at least some time to come. Timelines are difficult, but I'm confident in making that assessment for at least the next five years, say. And beyond that, my predictions get much more murky. Just, I'm just struck that self-driving cars are obviously an example of AI, and we seem to be a long way behind where some people thought we would be with those. Is that an example where people have underestimated the complexity of the real world? I think that's right. Um, self-driving vehicles have, of course, been um, predicted by the likes of Elon Musk to be on our streets uh, within one year for about seven years. So um, I, I think it's right that they haven't achieved what we'd expected. Um, the reasons for that are several. Um, of course, there are technical challenges in autonomous vehicles concerning corner cases, what you do when a 
cat jumps onto the road in front of your vehicle when it's also raining and um, perhaps there's a car that's coming slightly in the same direction as you. You know, there are difficult challenges for an AI to manage while remaining safe. Um, but of course, the technical challenges are coupled with other challenges as well. Some of those are regulatory. Um, we'd need to come up with a good regulatory framework for consumers being willing uh, to make consumers willing to invest in these technologies. Um, there are also um, uh, a need for there's a need for new insurance products to again give assurance to consumers before they buy. Um, also, there are many legal questions about the use of um, driverless vehicles that haven't yet been fully solved. So those are some of the things that have been holding up driverless vehicles. Of course, in other areas, we've seen AI progress much, much faster than we'd expected. And we've talked a lot about language models and uh, text to image already. So um, both of those examples could should give us some pause about the <laughs> difficulties of prediction in that um, even with all the expertise that we've developed in understanding AI, um, even in very recent history, we've underestimated the progress made in some areas, but overestimated in others. Thank you. And just finally then, Mr. Cohen, same question to you, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, yeah, I, I have a similarly unsatisfying answer, I think, um, if you can forgive me, uh, <laughs> Mike, for for saying it's a, it's a little hard to, uh, it, is, it is hard to predict. Um, uh, there, there's one historical fact I want to I, I want to mention, which is that Rutherford, a prominent physicist, um, famously said that nuclear energy was was really never going to happen, um, or or years and years in the future. Um, and the amount of time it took between that claim and Szilard's invention of the nuclear chain reaction was less than 24 hours. Um, I, I, I am quite confident that nothing I'm talking about is going to happen in the next day, let alone <laughs> week or month. Um, I, I think we have several years at least. Um, when you get there, the moment, but, the moment might sneak up on us. It, it, it might look quite a lot like today, um, um, months before. Um, techn technological progress often comes in bursts. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, um, I think there's a chance that we see something like this in five years, but a small one. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a chance that we don't see it for another 60. Thank you very much. Uh, Catherine um, had a couple of brief supplementaries. I, I thank you very much, Chair. I'm grateful. So the way we tend to talk about AI as individual boxes, in a similar way we talk about human beings and in individual boxes, and what human beings actually are is networks. And the way our networks regulate ourselves is competition for resources, which ends up as the prisoner's dilemma or game theory. So are we, should, can AI at the moment play the prisoner's di dilemma correctly? Are there any AIs that can? to create um, a kind of, you know, the reciprocal win-win, retaliate approach. But more importantly, should we be looking, when we choose to regulate concerning AI, to make sure that the resources that the AI needs to exist are valued within the game? Because anything that's smarter than us, that doesn't perceive itself at risk for competition of resources, he's going to cause a problem because it'll press the big red button on Mars. Okay. But the resources are electricity and the, en you know, the energy needed to input, as well as the maintenance of external components. Right. So just can't we just put those in? Just a brief response to that. So then we, we do need to move on <coughs> to our next uh, session where we've got the uh, witnesses waiting. Um, 
Professor Osborne first and then uh, Mr. Cohen briefly. Actually, in the interest of time, I think um, Mr. Cohen should go first. Okay, Mr. Cohen. Okay, I'll just if say that right. if, you, if you make the setting simple enough, it, uh, AI today can solve prisoner's dilemma, you know, iterated prisoner's dilemma stuff. Um, um, could it figure it out in the real world? Uh, I, there are settings complicated enough where I'm sure AI today could not do it. Um, but I would expect that AI, as AI advances, it will do the game theoretically um, optimal What about things. competition for resources to regulate the AIs? Um, I'm, af I'm afraid I didn't quite follow the, the question there. Are, are you asking? Um... Can I do a really short version of it, Chair? Basically, AI at the moment doesn't, have, doesn't worry about where the, its energy is coming from to run, and it doesn't worry about the fact that the pipe's rusting. Right. In the similar way, we need food and air yeah. to breathe. Right, right, okay, yes. And um, if it got sufficiently advanced to realize that any electrical failure would pose a problem to its future ability to achieve its goals, then it would start to be concerned about that. But wouldn't you regulate it to tell it that that's its problem in the first place, so it knows it's beholden to a higher master? I... I'm not that sort of regulation. I wouldn't. I would be less confident that we'd be able to. Craft. I think we'll come on to uh, to that in um, uh, in subsequent sessions. Uh, thank you very much, Lee. We've um, uh, we've run uh, a little beyond time, but that is a reflection uh, of the degree of interest in uh, your evidence. So, um, Professor Michael Osborne uh, and Mr. Michael Cohen, thank you very much indeed for your written evidence, but also for answering uh, questions so fulsomely uh, this morning.